I have so a story of of finding a body. Really? From childhood, yeah. Okay. So, um, actually, the library that I assume because of where you lived growing up that we went to, off to the right side of it, there's like this walkway that goes down to an area where my friend used to live. So we would often meet like in the plaza area or over by the library, and then either go to my house or his house. And one of these times we were just like all hanging out. We also had other friends that lived in his neighborhood. We'd play basketball, things like that. And I'm genuine. I think I was around 12 years old. So this is very similar kind of wow. story. But it wasn't this epic adventure that somebody had heard about or anything like that. It was more like we were going down that winding side street kind of thing to get to into his neighborhood uh, from the library. And it was it was on the way from the from the library to a friend's house. Didn't realize it the first time. Uh, we passed it, not looking at it, hadn't seen it or anything like that. Um, go down, hang out at a friend's house, play basketball, things like that. And on our way back to the library for me to like basically go home and some other people to go home, somebody noticed like this like sock s- sitting out of like large tall gla- grass. And um, like as we got closer, like somebody went up and like tried to like see what was going on with the, the, the sock and like pulled on it. And then we saw that it was attached to someone and it was a body. Friends, to episode 226 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm writer Luke Elliott. And I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And this week we discuss Stephen King's 1982 novella, The Body. So we're back with Stephen King. We're back to a book episode. Only the book. Uh, as you were saying before we got on, it, it, feels, it feels good, I think, to be back. Uh, just covering a book and something I guess we haven't done in a little while now I think about it. We've covered some short stories. We've covered a podcast. Um, so it's been a little bit. And uh, yeah, it is, a, it is a nice return to form, I think. And uh, Stephen King is, is, a, is a favorite of the pod. So it felt, you know, familiar. And, and uh, you know, it, I always enjoy this kind of thing. So Stephen King, obviously, that was our first project was with it. And there are like yeah. some similarities in terms of like a group going on a journey. And Absolutely. so between that and doing just a book episode, and it's really it has felt like it's been a while because, you know, as much as we enjoy doing those those episodes where we combine book and film in one episode, it's tough to find the balance. Right. And here we get to just talk about the book. It always feels like the movie overshadows in some way to me, like despite our best efforts. In, yeah. in it's like. Maybe because we do it second. I don't know what it is, but something about the movie. I, I kind of feel differently in a way. Like, I feel <laughs> like not that not that the book overshadows the movie, but I find that I'm like, I don't have enough time to say everything I want to say about the film sometimes, mm. you know? Right. Yeah. So I know people people do kind of like the combo episodes, but uh, there is something nice about being able to separate it out and really focus in. Yeah. Um, anyway, I don't know if that's inside baseball stuff or whatever, but <laughs> it's interesting to me. But uh, regardless, I'd never read The Body before, um, and I was thinking about it, and I'm pretty sure I've seen the film Stand By Me, but it might be one of those movies that I've just seen scenes from when it was on, because it's one of those movies that would come up on, like, 
TM, TMC, like, what is that, Turner Classic TNT. Movies? Or, no, the classic movie, TCM, what is it, Turner Classic Movies? Yeah. Anyway, it's like one of those kind of films that would come on sometimes, it'd be, you know, you have your commercial breaks, you have your, ed- yeah. you know, it's edited, and it would probably be Interesting. on. I don't I, know that it was old enough to be on TCM, though. When did it come out? It came out in the 80s. Okay. You don't think they play 80s movies on there? Maybe I'm thinking of the wrong network. Regardless, it was probably, I feel like it was on TV. I saw parts of it, but then right. maybe like a commercial came on and I walked away and didn't come back. Because right. I don't, I just don't remember a ton about this movie. Um, and the book, you know, the, the 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 novella for sure, you know, completely unfamiliar. So it's kind of cool going into this feeling almost like it's, I, I know very little about it, you know, other than a few scenes, which I'll mention as we go throughout that I, that I was kind of aware of. And that's about it. Yeah. Uh, how about you? You said you saw the movie more recently. Yeah, I did. And it was in my mind a lot as I went through and read this, but in a similar way to every other King project, it's always impossible to capture exactly what his voice is and what he wants to get out of the messaging of the story. You know, I think a lot of this, this might be one of the ones where I feel like the themes and like some of the really deep seated messaging that he wanted to get across in this story will cross in the film as well. But, you know, historically, people have had had a tough time really adapting something that is just like King commenting on universal truths and, you know, a lot of the different things that he he blends into his stories. And for different reasons, right? Like he has this wide range of writing. And clearly this to me feels like King deliberately trying to sit down and write about childhood trauma that he experienced. Um, almost like writing a memoir, but a fictional memoir for a fictional author who is a fairly thinly veiled Stephen King stand-in, which is uh, something we see time and again in his books. One of the most thinly, I would say. I think it's basically a wink and a nod, like, this is what happened to me. This is why I'm like the way I am. Yeah, I mean, it's not what happened to him. Uh, Not exactly. Um, I looked, I saw some stuff I read about it, but like, clearly he's talking about what it was like to be a kid in a kind of place he grew up. Yeah. In doing this, he is also, I think, I was reading that Different Seasons was his attempt to put together a book that was not horror. And uh, all of these all of these stories, which we didn't read all of them, but um, there's, you know, the, the Shawshank Redemption story is in here and, and some others. And, like, it was a departure from him. It sold fairly poorly, I was reading, wow. um, compared to his other books. So his publishers were kind of like, hey, when are you going to write that next uh, horror novel? And then he wrote, I think, Cujo following this and Cujo wow. was like a be- was like a bestseller. Yeah. So <laughs> not to mention he did some groundwork for Cujo in this story. He mentioned it here, yeah. So there's some interesting things with the timeline of when he actually wrote these things which we can get into. Um but I I felt like this was King saying I can write literary. In particular this story because I I'm not sure all the others played to this but like this story feels so literary to me. This right. is the kind of stuff you read when you're in undergraduate. Um it, it's the kind of thing that feels almost like it could it's an attempt to write like the great American novel. Like this is about a, a, an experience of being an American kid in in Maine and being a blue collar kid, right? Who's not part of that middle class with so much upward mobility. Right. And he's trying to capture that. And, and, and the writing to me felt more evocative. It felt more like more care was placed in the metaphor and the, the, uh, like you were saying, the thematic elements, like there, there was a lot of time of, of like an older, obviously the narrator here is older, but like looking back and trying to make sense of that time in his life and capture what makes it important. And also talking about like the difficulty of doing that. And, and that stuff is all 
it's present in some of his other work. Like we see that in it a little bit, but when you when you dress it up in a horror story, it's always going to feel like a piece of a story that is ultimately kind of about something different. Whereas this is like that's what this whole story is. It's all about you know coming to grips with life and death and growing up poor and feeling trapped. And and it's interesting that it's not as popular, you know. But uh, I was really taken with this with this story. I I really liked this kind of mode for Stephen King. I definitely agree. Yeah, we're seeing King in the '80s reflect on his childhood and also reflect on like the cultural sort of what was going to go on through the '60s. Like it's right at the turning of the '50s, becoming the '60s, and and like. This I think I saw an alternate title for the book. I don't know if you saw that in your research, but it was something about like loss of innocence or something about innocence. Okay. And the story really did feel I was thinking of my own life about like this idea of innocence and like understanding your own like vulnerability in the world as a kid when like that because I think there's a lot of like fearless kids, especially back then that just like you go around and you do all this stuff without thinking about the consequences. And that's a lot of like growing up is understanding where that changes Um, and then just the tragedy of growing up and knowing that these people are so important to you at the time and they're gonna, they won't be in the future potentially. And I never had friends like I had when I was 12 years old or whatever is like a famous line from this. And, um, it's so true. Like I, I do still have a few friends from when I was that age and there's nothing, you can't make that kind of friend again. Like you can't replicate that as an adult, in my opinion, just be, even if you try, because it's like, there's something about the time period that you're you're flipping over and becoming a new person in ways and yeah this story was so much about that like so many of the characters had these like epiphanies that they weren't ready to handle emotionally like emotional epiphanies and they they didn't even really address them they were just like dealing with them and then were you could tell gonna deal with them like in the future as they started to reflect like Stephen King is doing here Uh, you know I have a lot of thoughts about that Uh, as someone who moved away from not only my hometown but Florida my yeah. home state and came out to Oregon and was like, Oh, I guess I'm going to make all new friends now. And it, it's tough. And, you know, as an adult, people talk about this all the time, how hard it is to make friends. And, and I have done so here, but the experience is very different and you make friends with people for different reasons. Um, and I really value the friends I have here now. Um, but when you're a kid, I think friendship is so often based off of things just like, you know, being in school together, being uh, near each other in a neighborhood. And there's a a sort of like you're not necessarily as compatible as you might be with a friendship you make as an adult. So you find yourself being friends with people who you wouldn't otherwise be friends with. But then you you can really rub off on each other because you're so impressionable at that age that you don't even realize how much of an effect that can have on you as a person. Yeah. And to me, like just thinking personally of my friends that I'm that I still am very good friends with that from this age, it feels almost like you're forced together in the same way that you're forced together with family. It does feel like a familial thing. It doesn't feel like a friendship. And you you can't, like I said, like as an adult, even like great friends that I have that I've made as an adult, it's not the same as like feeling like you have like another brother or sister or somebody that that you grew up with in that way because it's not it's almost not even chosen family because that's what friends kind of are is like you get to go out and choose your friends and and make them your family but this is like in the same way that if you have a brother or sister who's born you're forced together with that person and you kind of like when you go to school you just you know you all go to the same school from the same area and you're forced together and you you kind of just like grow these like really like almost impenetrable friendships it's crazy 
Yeah, and it, it is so profound, too, to just think about that period and those kind of friends and what they mean to you at the time and how important they can be for you. But then also, you know, there's a line in this book about how friends come and go from your life. Like, uh, I think it says like a waiter at a, at a diner or something like right. And it's so true how you just drift away from people and they may have been so important to you at one point in time. But in some ways, you, you just grow apart and turn into different people who no longer need that connection that you maybe had at, at, at that particular time. Um, and, and that's what this book is all about you know the stuff we're talking about and the fact that it is really complicated and very personal and, and unique to each individual but yet there's some universal truths i think here too um it's a really rich vein to tap into for storytelling and even the process of navigating your own trauma and past and childhood and turning that into fiction and and the guilt that can sometimes come around that especially for someone like stephen king who finds a lot of success um, that's all in this book too. And I, you know, as someone who, uh, is a writer as well and, and thinks about these kinds of things and, and, you know, obviously nowhere near the success of, uh, of even an inkling of Stephen King. <laughs> um, yet I can, uh, I can appreciate and imagine what that might be like. And I can, I can appreciate the guilt one might feel when tapping into these, these things that destroyed people's lives and now you're turning it into entertainment. And I think that inherent push-pull is, is also like a, a, just a rich part of this, of this novella. I also couldn't help but think about the way that Stephen King was playing with this sort of like epic quest structure, yeah. right? Like it feels like almost like a fantasy story and these kids are dealing with things that are so monumental because it's like the first time they've dealt with these things or first time they've struck out alone with their friends and first time they've, you know, confronted authority, first time all of these things feel so massive and that's why it looms so large in, in this character's memory is like it was the first time they were doing going on this quest and, and then the way that they like mythologize all the things that they're doing they're like oh come on troops jump off the you know jump off the bridge yeah. and the way that they kind of turned it into something that's larger than life even though like as an adult you can look back and hear say like what was screaming in the woods it was probably just like an animal but you know like that horror that you that you build up as a kid or or sort of not just horror but like this imagination of what you're what you're actually doing being so much more important yeah, I, I think there's a lot to get into. Um, I, we'll go through a, uh, a summary and talk about the specifics. But before we do, uh, I think let's talk a little bit about the novella itself and some of the background I was able to find. Um, we've talked about Stephen King a lot on this podcast. And every time we try and kind of hone in on the project at hand. But I know I think back in like The Shining is one where we really delved into like him as a person. Um, and we've done that throughout. So if you want to hear more about Stephen King as a writer, check out some of our older episodes on him. Yeah, it feels like each piece is sort of like informing him where he was at at the time, what he was, you know, he, I think he liked this sort of feeling that he was in and he, he used some of that to write it, which was our first project. I just always feel like I, it comes back to it in some way. Yeah, I, I do think that it was something where he was exploring a lot of the same stuff. It, but I mean, in a lot of his books, he's done this. Right. Um, he's, he's very good at writing adolescent children, especially, you know, white males um, from this time period. And it's interesting that so many people, I think, find Stephen King when they're young and, mm -hmm. and, and kind of latch on to him because uh, I think that speaks to how well he writes these characters, how he, he really 
doesn't shy away from them and treat them like children. Like he he Mm-mm. he fully recognizes the flawed innocence there, but then he also like he makes them very real and very um I don't know, I guess what's the word I'm looking for here? Like the the, the way that they engage with the darker sides of life so strongly and so head on, right? Like they're not afraid to talk about sex. They're not afraid to talk about, you know what I mean? Like, and they have these weird rule systems about what's okay and what's not okay to talk about. And well, and as kids do, like that's, you know, they, they, that's yeah. the kind of to, to be, you know, there are moments that I definitely, because it's so, it's so wild to think about. We just covered Clueless in a bonus episode and we were talking a lot about like yeah. what holds up in storytelling and like, you know, different time periods like that's us looking back at something that came out in the 90s. This is Stephen King looking back at his childhood in the 50s and trying to represent that and how people talked. And I was cringing at some of the things that oh, yeah. they would say. And and it's like at the same time, in order to like represent it authentically, he feels like he needs to like really go there with everything and like really lay it all out. And some of the care like it's just wild that that like do I feel like this holds up? In a sense, because it's a time, it's a period piece. Yes, but at the same time, like there's a lot of like super insensitive like stuff that was just you know. To me, this is a push pull between authenticity and potential harm. Right. And I think Stephen King, especially at this point in his career, is far more concerned with authenticity than he is potential harm, and. And, and to me, it was all about, I want to capture the way we talked and the way we felt about the world. And that includes racism, that includes sexism, that includes all of the, the, the worst things that we said and did. And I'm going to talk about it and I'm going to put it in my book. And I think as a society and as a writing community, we have looked at this and said, there is harm being caused by this sometimes. There is stuff being perpetuated. There is, you know, you have readers who can come into it and literally be harmed by it. And that is something that authors should consider. And uh, I don't know, I, I don't want to speak for Stephen King as far as like how he feels about that these days, but my sense of it is that he cares a little more now about potential harm than he used to. And everybody, you know, everybody who's listening probably has opinions about how much authors should care about this. Um, I, I do think if you're not an author, it can be easier to say, like, you shouldn't care about it when you're not the one who has to live with harm caused by something right. you wrote. Absolutely. I mean, ultimately, like, who wants to go around spreading hateful things that make people feel bad? Like, I don't think that's anyone's intention. Yeah. And it's more than just make people feel bad. But like, you know, it, it can go farther than that. Yeah. Like, just real quick. Um, I, w- I was recently reading about Rage, a book by Stephen King that he literally had pulled out of print because it inspired multiple school shootings. Who, who the the kids who were found to have his book either in their lockers or in their backpacks they they talked about this book the book itself is about a school shooter and ultimately king decided it's not worth it to have this book out there i'm going to pull it he and he chose to withdraw it so that shows to me that at a certain point there is a line where he's like okay i'm going to actually care now about harm that can be caused that is so specific to school shooters and like we've talked about like entertainment 
and like what where where it starts to overlap and, and influence people to do things like violent video games and all these yeah. things that people have said for such a long time and it's you know it's a it's kind of a gray area you're not really sure but something like that i mean i think it's on like you said the author to understand that like even if there's a one percent or less chance yeah. that this is going to have some some sort of you know effect on someone i should pull it so i'm glad to hear you did that there was an unauthorized biography called Haunted Heart, The Life and Times of Stephen King um, that was written by uh, Lisa Rogak. Um, and in it, she talks about this um, friend of Stephen King's, George McCloud. And I also saw that this story was dedicated to George McCloud. Um, King was friends with him, good friends with him. And uh, George McCloud wrote a short story where some kids went to go see the dead body of a dog that had been hit by a train. And along the way, they had like a mini adventure. And along the way, they like sort of dealt with life and death and growing up. And Stephen King apparently read this story um, to, to help him. And he didn't end up publishing it. But when George read the body for the first time, he was like, this is, you know, my story. And wow. But he decided not to pursue it. And it wasn't until Stand By Me came out and he said, again, this is my story. So I, he, he tried to get Stephen King to add his name to um, and probably I think get a portion of the royalties. Yeah, he requested a portion of the royalties from the body in Stand By Me and King refused. He said, this wow. is, you know, I did not I did not take anything from you. And then there was a lawsuit um, and it was contentious and apparently ended their friendship over this. And ever since then, King has refused to read any of his fans' requests to read their manuscripts um, for advice. Um, and he has claimed that it's because he's concerned about further accusations of plagiarism. Um, McLeod had been writing this short story based on an incident from his childhood um, where he had done this thing, where he had looked for this dead dog. Um, in her book, uh, Lisa Rojak um, quotes McLeod and a few other friends of King who have recounted similar incidents. And they say, quote, if he's near something, he will absorb it like a sponge. It's his strength and naturally it's his weakness, too. Um, so that's an interesting theory, right? Like the idea that Stephen King is sponging around <laughs> and just like absorbing things he reads, things he hears, people he knows and putting them into stories. And I think there's probably some truth to that. Um, I've been around a few authors who you can get a sense that this is the kind of way they operate and it's not malicious it's just like they've trained their minds to be storytelling vehicles and i think part of that often is developing a sponge-like nature and and you'll see them in real time sometimes grab onto things and turn it into their own idea <laughs> and you're like I don't know. It's, it can be kind of weird. Do you feel yourself holding back? Also, like a lot of your story stuff at this point because of things like that? Or do you not worry about it? I don't worry about it. Um, but I could foresee a time where you might. Yeah, I don't know. It, it's 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 a weird thing because like ideas are difficult to uh, copyright, right? Like, like uh, if you turn it into a story, sure, you can copyright the, the text of the story. But an idea... Like, if I wanted to write a story about some kids who who uh, went along a train track to look at a dead body, I could do that these days. And I might change a lot of the stuff, but, like, at its heart, the, the sort of plot could be Stand By Me or it could be the body. And have I copied that now? Is that plagiarism because I copied an idea? 
um, most people say no, um, because there is a sort of reinterpretation thing that happens naturally, and there's there's sort of a there's only so many ideas, right? And there's only so many things that, and and taking them in and, and making them your own is part of being an artist. Um, so it's messy, and that's why there's a whole like, <laughs> you know, there, there's like the law side of it, and there's like the ethical side of it. You know, I, I I don't know. I didn't read the original short story here, so I can't say how much of it really was cribbed. Um, but I was thinking about uh, another book that we covered recently on the Why the Book Wins podcast, um, where uh, uh, an author stand-in character is haunted by accusations of plagiarism. Uh, this, this is was, it, right? That's the that's the connection for him to write. And it was written years later. Um, and it was about yeah, he had stolen that. And that author, this is um, Secret Window, Secret Garden. Um, and he's he's haunted by this this idea that he stole the idea for a short story from this writer who never went on to do anything. And he's this big famous author now. He just can't stop himself. Stephen King, he's like every every moment of my life will be turned into a horror film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean he's like he he and he works through stuff in his fiction clearly. Yeah. I I mean like I I don't yeah, it's t- it's really tough to do I think that Stephen King is a copier? No, because he's clearly written just an insane amount but at the same time it sounds like he got some story ideas potentially well let, when he talks about this book he says that it's based off two different incidents i was reading so he said that the first and this is something i think we talked about in pet cemetery he only yeah. remembers it um because he has heard about it from other people but he doesn't actually remember it firsthand he said that one day when he was four years old he came home pale and in shock his mother couldn't get him to tell her what happened but after asking around, she discovered that he had seen his friend struck and killed by a freight train while they were playing. Despite having no memory of the incident, it seems pivotal for King. So I, I totally agree with that. Um, he's talked about it all the time. Uh, you know, I think we've, it, we've seen it come up time and again. Um, he also said that when he was slightly older and living in Durham, Maine, his friend uh, Chris Chesley came by one day and asked, quote, Do you want to see a dead body? And King and another friend all set out to go to Runaround Pond where a drowned boater had just been pulled out of the water. Quote, they, they hadn't covered up the corpse yet, Chesley remembers. It was an educational experience for us all. It wasn't a pleasant sight. So there are two different moments here that really did happen to him that he's, he's also drawing on. And I'm sure it, it's very easy for him to focus on the things that did happen to him and feel like this is, the, this is my story. And then, yeah, maybe there's like an element or two over here that he pulls on, but it is probably subconscious because things just get, get absorbed in, in, in some of these people who are so creative. You lose the track of, of where that came from. You, you can't remember where that came from at all. You just think it's in your you think it just came up like everything else that comes up in your mind. Yeah. And it's hard to stop those those thoughts. Like once it creeps in and it sounds like the best idea, like you're going to want to go with it no matter what. You're like, that's the best yep. idea for the story. So I have to stick with this because the alternative is write a bad story. Yep. I got to tell you while we're here, I have so, a story of, of finding a body. Really? From childhood, yeah. Okay. So um, actually, the library that I assume because of where you lived growing up that we went to, off to the right side of it, there's like this walkway that goes down to an area where my friend used to live. So we would often meet like in the plaza area or over by the library and then either go to my house or his house. And one of these times we were just like all hanging out. We also had other friends that lived in his neighborhood. We'd play basketball, things like that. And I'm genuine. I think I was around 12 years old. So this very similar kind of story, but it wasn't this epic adventure that somebody had heard about or anything like that. It was more like we were going down that winding side street kind of thing to get to into his neighborhood uh, from the library. And 
it was it was on the way from the from the library to a friend's house didn't realize it the first time uh we passed it not looking at it hadn't seen it or anything like that um go down hang out at a friend's house play basketball things like that and on our way back to the library for me to like basically go home and some other people to go home somebody noticed like this like sock sitting out of like large tall grass and um like as we got closer like somebody went up and like tried to like see what was going on with the, the the sock and like pulled on it and then we saw that it was attached to someone and it was a body and uh we like ran home to his house which was the closest house and uh his mom like called the police and they called it in and everything and it was it was wild i don't know exactly what happened yeah i i like i i never really looked into it it was i almost feel like after reading the story i was like man i should have looked into it because i kind of suppressed it in a way too because it was like and I didn't look very closely. I remember like as a kid not wanting to look and see more than like the feet. So I really remember like a sock. Did you tell your parents about it? Yeah. I wonder if if uh, if you reached out to them, if they might know more details, because sometimes people find stuff out when we're kids and then they don't tell us <laughs> because we're children. Right. So maybe between now and in our next episode on the film. You can reach out to your mom and see if she has any more details, because I'm really curious to know what the story is there. I'll try. Um, I'll call my friend too. see if yeah, he, see if, if anybody any knows. Um, and then that's something we can we can tell people uh, next week if we, if we can find more info. Yeah, that's that's wild. That, that actually happened to you. Wow. Uh, yeah, I'm really curious. So I assume our listeners are, too, um, to know to know what's going on there. Um, had you remembered that until you read this book? book or i that? did yeah okay i mean my friend and i will bring it up every now and again and like we were kids like we were 12 year old kids so like honestly it became like this thing where it was like oh well you found a sock and it was attached you know what i mean to a body and it was like this dark thing that neither of us really i feel like actually you know came to grips with wow okay so um this book uh was originally published in different seasons which is the book that i ended up purchasing like i said as a collection of four different stories so one thing I found out when researching this that, that I found fascinating is that uh, Stephen King apparently likes to write, or at least at this point in his career, he would write a full-length novel, and then, so so his process is he'd write a first draft where he tells the story to himself, he write a second draft where he revises it, this is back when he's writing on a typewriter, mind you, he revises the story, um, cuts out all the stuff that doesn't need to be there, adds in stuff that does, then he sends the, that draft to his first reader's who give him their responses and, and, and their critiques. And then he writes a third draft uh, and with the, with the input of, of his editor too, I think, um, that ends up being the one that it goes on to be published. And that's his process for writing his novels. When he is in between draft two and draft three, when he has given it to his readers and he's waiting for them to get back, he said there's about a six-week period usually while he's letting it cool off before he reads it again and implements these changes. During those periods, he likes to write a novella because he's Stephen King and he can't stop writing. Uh, so after he wrote Salem's Lot, he wrote this book, The Body. That was the novella. After he finished writing the draft for The Shining, he wrote Apt Pupil, another novella that's in this collection. After he wrote The Stand, he wrote Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption while he was waiting for that one to cool off. Um, so that, it's just pretty amazing to me, right? Like these mega novels. There's like no similarity in those projects I know. either. It's completely, well, he, I think he, maybe by design, he's writing something yeah. completely different. These are, these are novellas he didn't think he was going to be able to publish because they weren't horror and they weren't the kind of thing that he usually writes. So he was just writing them almost for fun. Wow. 
Um, and that's pretty amazing to me that he's just like, ah, I just finished, you know, this thing. I'm going to crank out, you know, the Shawshank Redemption now. And now I'm going to crank out the body and, and go on to be stand by me. And after Crazy. I'm, after I'm writing Salem's lot about vampires, you know, it's just like, it's so amazing to me that, that he's able to do that. Um, and yeah, I mean, every, everything's happening so fast that I think, you know, these ac- accusations of plagiarism, um, there's probably some weight to it, but also like he's, he's just writing all the time and sucking everything up into his system and putting it out and doesn't even realize it when he's maybe grabbing some things from other people. Um, so I think let's get into it. I'm going to divide this just into two chunks since it's a little shorter. It's a novella, uh, two chunks of plot, and then we can talk about them. So Gordon Lachance, who goes by Gordy as a child, narrates the story from an undetermined point in the future, a wealthy author. He uses his stories to make sense of his past. He writes The Body to grapple with the events surrounding the death of Ray Brower, who was hit by a train. As the story begins, Gordy's friend Vern Tessio asks him and two other friends, Teddy DeChamp and Chris Chambers, if they want to see a dead body near another town. Vern tells them while he was hiding under his porch, he overheard his older brother talking about the body's location. Gordy Teddy and Chris think it sounds like an adventure, so they create a cover story of camping in a field by Vern's house before setting out from their hometown, the mill town of Castle Rock, to see the body. As he describes their long walk to the body's location, Gordon reveals that each of his friends comes from a family that is either abusive or dysfunctional. His own trauma stems from the loss of his older brother, Dennis, who died in a car accident in the army. His grieving parents ignore him in the aftermath. Okay, so let's stop here. We could talk about these these four kids, our four sort of lead characters, and the whole setup uh, of of this book. There's something really magical about Stephen King's setups. Like as he begins to start the story, I'm always there are times that I'll read I'll read a book and I'm it's like a little bit of a slog trying to get familiar with the characters, trying to understand where they're at. With King, it's so it's like effortless. It's just like it goes so quick and you're so invested so so quickly with all of these people's different, you know, struggles and he almost simplifies it by giving them like distinct things about them. First of all, the penny thing we should talk about. Uh, the brother, the brother, like buries. This is how he introduces. I believe this is Teddy. This is Vern. He buries his his allowance and creates a treasure map for himself. Oh yeah. And then his mom like throws away the treasure map, and then so he's constantly digging in all these spots around their house trying to find his buried treasure, and he refuses to believe, even though everyone else kind of knows. His brother found it, dug it up, and sold. You know, used it, and <laughs> yeah. you know, paid for everything, and um. It's so it's such a funny story. Yeah. It's so like kind of relatable for how like unbelievably yeah. distraught you would be if you lost all that money, four years worth of allowance or something like that. Yeah. Um, he's just so quick and efficient with setting up characters. And then, you know, going forward, you, you kind of get that this kid's afraid of his brother because he's hiding under the house when he hears his brother talk about that, the body that was found. And he's like, he would beat the shit out of me if he if he heard me down here. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Well, yeah, just the 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 violence that these you know all these kids it seems like they face at home uh, is is that's such a hallmark of of King's fiction and the, the it's like they're all from broken families you know uh, Gordy's brother has died and and his parents basically ignore him now um, he tells this story about reading Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. Um, and it was interesting because like on one hand, it's very relatable, right? Like he read this story and he saw himself and he saw how he isn't seen. And Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man is about a, a black man who feels like society doesn't see him. And 
on one hand, it's cringy as hell, right? To have this white kid saying like, yeah, I totally get it. That's just like me. Um, but on the other hand, like it is a natural like thing that we do. Cause I read Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison when I was probably like 15 and I'd be lying if I said there wasn't a little bit of like, yeah, I sometimes feel this way too, you know? I, like obviously it's not the same, but like I mean that's the intention of the author, right? He, obviously, right. So, he wants to so, create empathy, right? And he wants us right. to to empathize, and it works. And uh, you know, I, I was I was both laughing at it and like identifying with it, but then also cringing <laughs> as I'm reading him talk about that. And I don't know, he just it's it's a, it's a great detail, so true to life. And then yeah, I mean, just the way he captures the language of these kids. Um, so many little phrases, uh, and and he harps on them. He returns to them, like we see King do a lot. He brings back these little phrases, right? It's it's so smart, and it creates a real texture. And it's also very unique to like Maine in this time period. Um, he uses pop culture of the time to like really uh, set it in a tapestry of like real life. That I'm always kind of I'm always I love the way. King uses pop culture references in his books. Yeah. And it's a it's a form of nostalgia for him. You know what I mean? Like he's he's using these songs that he did love, I'm sure, putting them into this these stories and he's like almost immortalizing them in his own, you know, his own history in that way. Yeah. Well, and then there's a gun. Uh <laughs> uh one kid brings a pistol that he has taken from his dad and it's loaded, uh which we find out is it just goes off accidentally at one point. Um, and it just kind of scares the kids, but they're like, whatever. And then, uh, they make fun of the kid for, for shooting it for Gordy for shooting it. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's such a good detail. And then of course I was like, well, here we have Chekhov's gun, but like a literal Chekhov's gun, (laughs) because often Chekhov's gun isn't referring to an actual gun. Right. It's just like a plot device. But like, (laughs) as soon as we got that gun, I was like, well, this is coming back later. (laughs) Like, this is going to play some sort of role. You can't introduce a gun here and not have it play a role later with children. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but it also is such a perfect thing, right? Because we see these kids feeling invincible. It's not just invincible, though. It's like they know they're not invincible, but they're almost like daring death to come for them. You got the kid who was abused by his father, who who was, a, uh, I think it was Teddy, whose father was the World War II veteran who went to, like, burn his haircut, I guess, and, like, scorched his ears on the stove and then got locked up. And ever since then, now he wants to be this, like, army. He wants to join the army and, like, follow in his father's footsteps. And he actually really seems to lionize his father, even though he suffered this horrific abuse at his hands. And he is he's really got something to prove. And he's the one who's, like, playing, playing this game with, like, trucks and trains where he wants to just dodge out of the way the last second. And the idea of that is so scary as an adult. And but like so like when you're a kid, he just doesn't think it's going to happen to him or he just doesn't care. He doesn't understand the the implications of it or like what what all could go wrong. There's just so much in this detail that is is so perfect for this story. I I knew kids like that. You know what I mean? I knew kids who were daredevils and wanted to do that kind of stuff. And it's so crazy because within the course of the story, we get to see the outcomes of these characters. Yeah. And that's not to say that every daredevil ends up dead, yeah. but I assume that King probably pulled from his his history in some ways and saw some some kids who didn't make it out of the the kind of area that he grew up in, like the blue collar area. And uh, you know, I mean, I feel like he sa- he's basically saying as much in his in his in this work here. Um, I found Chris to be 
fascinating character. Really drawn to him. Love that he's like the leader, voice of reason. Tough guy. And it's and he's not the main character, which I like because like in it, the main character is sort of the leader, right? Yeah, Bill Dembro. Bill Dembro. And yeah. so in this situation, Chris, the the main character gets to sort of idolize this guy. Yeah. And see that he's like you know from a broken home, dealing with stuff way worse than what Gordy potentially on different you know different scales has to deal with. But then to see, you know, the tragedy of his overall story, we'll get we'll get around to. But it's just the kind of nature of of small towns like this, especially back then, and just like violence and like what was going yeah. on for the in through the sixties, and you know. I think uh, Stephen King's time as a as a school teacher played a more profound role in his ability to write these characters than maybe I've recognized in the past. The more I think about it, it's like, it's like, yeah, he grew up in this time. He had these friends, but then he went on to be a teacher in this kind of area for these kinds of kids. And I'm sure he saw every year these stories play out within his classrooms, right? Like he would find out about kids' backgrounds and and what they were dealing with at at home and how that would affect them when they came to school. And I I don't know the details of like how long he was a teacher for, but I know it was a decent amount of time taught English, was writing on the side. And I'm sure as he's writing, he's surrounded by kids who are going through a lot of this stuff. And it's reminding him of the stuff he went through, but also new stuff that he's seeing play out in front of him. Well, and how tragic is it that you see the students that aren't going to apply themselves and you know they never will. And they'll never make it out of the situation that they might be in. And then a character like Chris to see like a reaction. I think, you know, most people are reactions to their parents in a positive or negative way. Uh, One way or the other, that you're a reaction. Um, whether you're similar or not similar, you're in some way of reaction. And like seeing Chris as a reaction to his father, he won't drink alcohol. Yeah. He's like, I would never touch, I would never touch it. And things like that in characters and, and in people really that King probably saw coming up. And I don't know what grades he was teaching, but seeing that kind of stuff would be like tragic, I feel. Yeah, man. Um, gosh, it, it, so many things that I identify with too. Um, as someone who, you know, both of us, we grew up in a fairly small Florida town, kind of suburby town. Um, and now we both have moved. You know, you're in Orlando and I, I'm out here in Portland and, and both of us are at least away from that part of Florida. And in some ways, it feels like we got out. Um, <laughs> and to think about the people who never left and and, and to think about friends you were with and, and it's such a complicated thing. Um, friends you have never went to college. You know, uh, and and just how much college opened up my world for me and made me really expand my boundaries and my horizons and everything. And, and, and I'm so thankful for that and realizing that the only reason I was able to do that is, well, is twofold. One, I had enough support to be able to have academic achievement and, and like nurture uh, what intellect I had and two just like the the fact that I was a smart kid right like and 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 that's what he's kind of dealing with here and Gordy and even his friends look at him and they're like you're gonna go to college you're smart you have a storytelling talent and you need to you need to use that to get out of here <laughs> and not everybody has that of course story is what's important to us and like getting out doesn't necessarily just mean like pursuing the arts or something like that you know what I mean sure, it, could, yeah. it could mean anything. anything yeah I mean it's there's so many degrees right and it depends on where you're from and like it's not to say that you're happier because you left. It's just yeah. there is a, there is a reality of sometimes like, I don't know, whenever I go back to Palm Bay, I'm like, man, I'm glad I don't live here. That's how I feel like I, I there are people here there who I love and uh, there are things I'm nostalgic about. 
but man, do I feel like it's closing in around me sometimes when I'm there. Um, I totally agree. Yeah. But you also temper that with like the fact that in some ways it's home and it always will be. And, and I always, I want to come back to it. I just, I know why that I want to come back as a visitor and, but there is something there too, when you come back and, and it can, it can really kind of bring out and illustrate for you the differences in who you are now versus who you were in a way that nowhere else in the world will ever do that than the place you grew up. And and growing up, you, you know, you, I was saying your reaction to your parents, you're also a reaction to your friends that you're around, your environment. Do you agree on like an ethical and moral level with like the people around you and stuff? And I think that plays a part in you deciding to like go out on your own and, and see the world change, change your viewpoint, that kind of thing. But um, yeah, this idea of uh, somebody being in an opportune situation to succeed, you know, like there's so many students, it wasn't cool to be, to be like nerdy like it is now or to be smart it just wasn't when we were i still kids don't think it's that it's ever really been cool to be the smart kid like I, I don't know like yeah i don't know i think it's becoming more maybe more maybe more now but like there's something about being smart and doing well in school that will always be sort of inherently uncool right because it's always kind of cool to be the like kid who does shitty at school and cares right. more about his social life or their social yeah, life. Not like, caring yeah, not caring it's, it's not cool to care about shit, which right. like <laughs> that's our whole podcast, right? <laughs> We're doing the right. uncool thing of caring about things. I definitely felt that growing up. You know, I felt like there were times that it came natural to, to me in terms of like things we were learning and wanting to read and apply myself in certain ways. And then I also felt, you know, people sort of treating me differently or talking about me differently. And this sort of push and pull that you have to go through on your own personal journey to see like, can you push back against the crowd and sort of do your own thing? People would see me reading and things like that and think it was lame and like talk shit about it. And it's like, I, I took that as more of a challenge than feeling bad about myself. It's one of the reasons that I identified with sort of a, a counterculture, like fringe heavy metal against, you know, establishment status quo right. element, even though I was a smart kid who did well in school. And like behaved and got good grades. And I'm like, and it's like, how do those things line up? Well, because I always felt like it was so deeply in the school that I was in, you know, like Palm Bay High School um, and in, in Southwest Junior High and all these others, you know, it was so uncool to be smart and so uncool to like books and so uncool to to be good at school that it felt like I was doing something rebellious by actually embracing that. And so I identified as being kind of a rebel, but I was being a rebel by being good at school. And so weird to talk about, but like, that's kind of how, like, that's the only reason that I think that worked in my head. Yeah, that's funny, man. I never thought about it like that. I, I didn't feel that way. I, I definitely felt like a rebel. No question about that. But it was also like a rebel against authority. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I found myself well, a little in bit like, of that too. <laughs> I found myself in the middle area where I was sort of rebelling against the people and the, the authority. Right. Uh, so there is a part here in the start that I definitely have to talk about. There's this whole metafiction thing going on in this book that I absolutely love. And we get it really comes to a head two separate times. The first time Gordy is t it just he takes this story about Chico and he just drops it in there as a chapter. And we read this story about Chico and the story is all about Chico um, coming to grips with like his brother dying. And um, it, he, there's like a revelation about his mother, his stepmother has been having like a sexual relationship with, um, with, with his brother and like all this, all this stuff. Right. And then 
I was like, wow, this is really interesting. I guess this is Gordon's like story is what we're getting here because there's like a citation at the beginning of it. And then right after that, we get Gordon as, you know, removed in time, analyzing that story and talking about it as being like bad undergraduate fiction and it's so sexual. Yeah, you know, this was written by a, a guy who'd only ever like had these two like, you know, brief sexual experiences, yet it's so sexual. And I was laughing so, like, I love this so much as someone who's been through an undergraduate literary program. And, like, it's so true. Um, and it's so uh, so funny to think of Stephen King deliberately, like, putting things into this um, with the intention of it seeming like an undergraduate story. So funny. And I love that we're, we're this, this, the reason it's included, right, is we're seeing Gordon work through childhood trauma through his fiction. So as we're reading his fiction, we're thinking about the character of Gordon, whose King has created, who is working out his own shit. And so we're, we're thinking about the relationship between author and art and, and why he's doing it and what, what here is, is true and what here isn't. Cause we know the true story behind it. And then what, like why he's including certain details. Um, it's, it's a really interesting, ex, you know, experience just reading that one. And then later on, we get this whole story about, um, it's like the vomiting story about some kid named like Lardass or something. And it's all about him like going to this pie eating contest, but it's, it's introduced in a weird way. Cause he starts telling the story to his friends in fiction, in the body part of fiction, I guess. I don't know. I'm trying to differentiate. Um, and then it transitions into a published work to finish out the story published quote unquote by Gordon. And it's about this uh, pie eating contest where he gets his revenge on the town and makes everybody throw up and it sets off like a chain reaction of vomit. Um, and in itself, itself, it's a very like kind of gross sophomoric thing, but like I can see Stephen King sort of playing with his, his reputation as being this like shock author who, who writes horror, which some people might, you know, I can say is akin to writing a story about a bunch of people throwing up on each other. Um, and I'm sure he felt that way. And um, the idea that Gordon has this part of himself too. And like, why would he write that kind of story? Like, what is he working through here by doing that? Um, and he's all, and it's all of this comes back around to the one layer removed of Stephen King writing as Gordon writing these stories. Uh, and I love these like layered meta fictional things that are going on. Like, what was your take on those parts? It took me a little bit to really understand, like, what's the what's the significance of this of this short story that we're getting here? And then come to find out, I think it's like a sort of a reveal too, where it's like, oh, yeah. And it was like something that he was, you know, workshopping or whatever. Yeah. Well, because he talks about I don't he's like, uh, you know, I hate this story now when I look back and read it. Yet I there are certain things in there that are like undeniably true. And so I wouldn't change it. I think it was one of the things he was. He was yeah, saying. I kind of thought that we were setting up that who's was the character's name from Chico. The, the Chico. I thought we were setting up Chico to be because I, I thought I'd remembered a significant part of the story kind of being left open ended was like, was the kid hit by a train or was the kid killed um, that they're going to find? And I thought that for a second, this character was being set up to be like some sort of like killer potentially. Um, and then, you know, it came around to the point that I was like, okay, so he's working with, within a, a fiction within a fiction. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's really fun and cool to do that. I think you get to a certain point, you've written the straightforward story and you want to do something like this, right? Where you want to play with, like, I want you to think about what I'm doing right now while I write this. It's so fun. Like, I just love the idea of being like, I've created a writer character and now I'm going to write something that that character once wrote. 
as they were exploring their fictional trauma that I've given to them. <laughs> and I'm going to try and write it in such a way that captures not only that, but also like a certain early time period in his, in his writing career where he hadn't refined all of his skills and, and was still writing in like broad tropey ways. Like there's so many layers to that. And it's so fun. Like, I don't know. It's very cool. He also just wanted to like increase the level of difficulty for himself and yeah. sort of give himself some hoops and then and do it again to jump through. I was so taken with the fact that he did it at all. And then when he does it again later in like a different way, I was like, damn, he's like flexing here a little bit again. This, I think this is Stephen King writing his most literary mode. I, I think I've seen this is the most uh, of, of, of him truly just, reveling in the the art of writing i think um, yeah and, and we've cool talked way. in the past about how like he does have literary tendencies oh, for and sure. literary work like parts to his to his fiction but he also loves to work in the genre space so he like kind of seats both together and there is like moments of kind of horror in here like when he's describing the body when he's describing uh especially when he's like having this fantasy about um his brother's ghost or zombie like coming out of the closet and like the fear that king is able to create as he's evoking this i was like this is a very stephen king detail um but on the other hand he's doing it because he's trying to establish the reason that gordon went on to become a horror writer and he's like this is what it comes back to so there's like uh there's this obfuscation of detail that may be true for Stephen King, right? Like these are the kinds of things, the kinds of moments that led him to become a, a horror writer. One can read between the lines and assume, I think. Definitely. I mean, he, you know, I just think he he loves living in that space. So he even in a literary, more literary story like this, he's going to have elements of horror. Like I mentioned before this, like the screaming in the woods in the middle of the night is like kind of out of place but it's something that like as kids you your imagination starts to work on you and if you're in the dark in the woods like you're going to start getting freaked out by things and this idea of like something screaming out there is almost supernatural in the way that he describes it we also got to talk about this sort of as they call them now i think i've heard it return referred to as free range kids um and how like this was still a thing when I was young, like I, but I know that it's less of a thing now, and it seems like it was even more of a thing like the further back you go, where you could kind of just go do whatever for a long period of time without checking in on anyone. There are no cell phones. The idea that you and your friends can just go off and have an adventure, going through the woods, like getting into who knows what. Maybe you've told a story to your to your friends. Everybody, I think, understands the idea of like they said they were going to sleep over at their house, and they said the other thing. Um, but I think for kids today, like it's it's you can't do that anymore because it's too easy to like know to be caught in that lie where it was like it was really hard. It's a certain time period where these four kids could be gone for like multiple days. And then at the end of the book, it's like, eh, and no one ever found out what actually happened. You had people boosting cars, like driving around in stolen cars just yeah. to joyride and leave them somewhere that happens today. There's no way you get away with yeah. it. Um, that, like, you know. I think we were at an interesting time because we saw we were pre-internet yep. and post-internet and sort of see how kids are raised after us and how kids were raised before pre, us. Pre and post cell phone too and post, post uh, smartphone, just like right. maybe as big a development as the internet itself. The rule was come back by sundown. You know what I mean? That, so that was sort of our, yeah. that was our check But I would go like spend the night at people's houses and like camp out in backyards and shit. We'd do that sometimes. So it's not beyond the pale to think that something like this could happen. Okay, let me read the, the, the second paragraph here, and if it's not clear, we're going to be spoiling the rest of the story. 
Finding the body is like completing a rite of passage, because it forces the boys to confront death and mortality. While they stand next to the corpse, local hooligan Ace Merrill arrives with several of his hoodlum friends. The older boys want to report the body and take credit for the find. Chris makes them leave by pointing his father's pistol at them. After Ace and his friends leave, the boys return to Castle Rock. No one knows that they're missing and the story never gets out. However, during the weeks that follow, Ace and his friends hurt each of them badly. Gordy concludes the story by revealing that each of his friends dies young. Vern dies in a fire. Teddy is killed in a car crash. Chris is stabbed and killed while trying to separate two arguing men in an Oregon restaurant. Gordy writes the body to process his feelings about the weekend when they search for Ray's body. As the story concludes, he questions the purpose of his own work and whether it makes sense for a person to grow wealthy by writing fiction. Let's see this also in Stephen King's mythos, like his sort of like Stephen King verse, where it's Castle Rock, which is, we haven't had a story in Castle Rock yet, I believe, but there have been many references. It's so funny because I think Gordon even also says that he's like making up a fictional town name and they are from a fictional town in Stephen King's. (laughs) Yeah, I just love that. We hear about Shawshank, which is a fictional prison. Yeah. Yeah. We get a reference to Cujo, like mm-hmm. we talked about. This town, I know for a fact, is like a, a prime area where things tend to happen in Stephen King's. And a lot of those things that happen in these stories in this town, in his fictionalized town, are supernatural. Well, we hear we hear Derry being referenced in uh, Secret Window, Secret Garden. So he, he does this all the time with his main like geography. He's got these, he's got these fictional towns. Yeah. Interesting to think about a story that doesn't have anything overtly supernatural in it, but is seated in an area that is supernatural in other stories. There was some talk about like premonition and shining and stuff. Like maybe, maybe he had some shining. That's what I'm saying. Like, I think he didn't choose to make it a big deal in the story, but I do think that there are supernatural elements at play in at times. It's still within his universe. It does feel like that. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. So let's talk about the finding of the body. This is long journey, right? And they've they've gone through, they've gone to the dump and they've been chased by a dog and all this stuff. They finally find this body and it's described as, you know, being this really, I don't know, I found the bugs to be like one of the most disturbing details. Um, the, the way the eyes looked and, and, and in some ways, like it didn't look like the kid was that injured, but in other ways... Like he clearly was, he had been killed. The way his shoes had been knocked off. There's all these just like amazing details that that King finds that makes it so feel so true. Right. The the him not looking like he was actually hit by a train yeah. was a detail that I was like, is that also saying like was there a murder here or was there something that happened with his? Well, like, and then he but he has this like imagine uh, fantasy or whatever about like what if he was hit and didn't die and then he was right, like, laying there around. for a really long time yeah. before he died and like that that's horrifying in and of itself. Yeah. The thing that I related with most having had a like somewhat similar situation is, you know, they had this whole build up to seeing this body. And then there's the moment right before when uh, Gordon says, like, he realized in that moment he didn't want to see a dead body. They did all this stuff. They went on this whole journey and he realized I didn't want to see it. Yeah. And like, I felt like I... We didn't have a buildup when I had this like yeah because it wasn't like a, hey do you want to come see it this? was just like we saw yeah. it and it was like I couldn't not look at it and and I even feel like I didn't look at it in a way like I said before so it's like maybe you've just repressed it yeah maybe I did that moment feels very real when King p- threaded that in for yeah, this character like I felt like I was like wow that that was pretty realistic and uh, yeah I mean this this whole section here like seeing just thinking of a bunch of kids like 
on a journey to see a body and Mm -hmm. then realizing like the gravity of actually seeing a body and understanding like the end of life and he do he goes through this whole thing that talks about like this person would never go on a date they would never do that they you know they list off all the things they would never do and this life was ended short and like just the super haunting nature of that and how the gravity of that and how that matures people that you know that, that that kind of encountering these kinds of things as kids like make you become an adult a little faster i feel and like some ways they knew that because like they sought it out but in other ways they didn't know what they were getting into and which is kind of this whole story like yeah. they just don't understand what they're getting into and it's like this metaphor for life but they're drawn to it still right right like curiosity yeah. or something and then uh, there's this really interesting thing about ownership. Like they, that's like the body is theirs. They've earned it. And these older boys show up and also just really well plotted where um, to me, it felt like there was this momentum and you, when all of a sudden the boys were coming and you know, they're going to arrive at the body and that's going to be there at the same time. There's going to be some epic confrontation. Um, we've been building up to the finding of this body throughout the entire story anyway, by the time we got to that scene, I was so like I felt the climax like it was so perfectly built. And, and um, I I actually think this story ends really well. You know, Stephen King gets a lot of shit for his endings, but I think I think this has a great ending. The chapters got shorter as we went. There was a lot of short chapters throughout. Right. But but the second there's like a section like through to the end yeah. where the chapters are pretty short. Yeah. And I think there's something to that like. In terms of pacing, and I I don't know if people put as much weight on chapters as I do, but I tend to really see them as like either like this is a good stopping point, or like uh, a little check mark, a little achievement, like oh I've finished this chapter now I'm onto this one and I'm this far f- through the book, and so like as I got close to the end I was reading and I found that like the last third like whereas there were longer chapters that I would be like oh that was a long one I'll take a break after reading this one I'll go do something else come back to the book the last third i didn't stop i went all the way through and it was just like so propelled by the fact that like everything was happening it was this huge climax and everything it felt like i was really ripping through it there is absolutely a power to chapter breaks um i i I won't say that all authors necessarily are using it in that way um but it certainly is a tool in the tool belt and i think king is using it here for deliberate purpose and i think it can it can strongly influence pacing um, we've talked about how in like thrillers, it tends to be shorter, shorter chapters so that you feel like you're reading them very quickly and it can feel like you're in this breakneck pace. Um, I think also with like a, an author like Kurt Vonnegut had tend to have short chapters. Um, and, and often you can capture a moment and you can almost lend it a profundity or some sort of importance by making it its own chapter. It's like, oh, this, this little scene is its own chapter. So clearly it's important. Um, and it can kind of like bolster in that way um so there's a lot of cool stuff you can do do with that i I definitely think he's doing that here um i I love how existential and and just contemplative this book got towards the end um and there's all these moments and i I have a couple of them that i'll I'll just read where he's talking i think they're very thematic for the story so gordon says quote the most important things are the hardest things to say They are the things you get ashamed of because words diminish them. Words shrink things that seemed limitless when they were in your head to no more than living size when they're brought out. But it's more than that, isn't it? The most important things lie too close to wherever your secret heart is buried, like landmarks to a treasure your enemies would love to steal away. And you may make revelations that cost you dearly only to have people look at you in a funny way, not understanding what you've said at all. Or why you thought it was so important that you almost cried while you were saying it. That's the worst, I think. When the secret stays locked within, 
not for want of a teller, but for want of an understanding ear. So I, I think that's absolutely talking about the nature of storytelling and the nature of revealing something like this. Um, and, and honestly, like why people write, I think this is, this is giving us some insight into maybe why Stephen King writes. Some people see it as entertainment. Some people see it as therapy. Some people see it from different angles, but ultimately like it's a pursuit of art, but it's also a pursuit of like sociology or something like you're kind of like getting to see and analyze people in a way that I think most don't, you know, or don't take the time to, or, or don't, uh, put the effort into. Well, and also the limitations of trying to capture something in words and trying to tell it and then also the 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 sort of role an audience plays in that and the role of having an understanding ear to tell it to um he gets into that a little bit more in this other quote i wanted to read so i'll do it now quote speech destroys the function of love i think that's a hell of a thing for a writer to say i guess but i believe it to be true If you speak to tell a deer you mean it no harm, it glides away with a single flip of its tail. Love has teeth. They bite. The wounds never close. No word, no combination of words can close those love bites. It's the other way around. That's the joke. If those wounds dry up, the words die with them. I love that idea of like, just that detail about trying to tell a deer that you mean it no harm is what makes it run away. Um, And like that is such a great metaphor for how like trying to capture a story can sometimes feel so frustrating. This is something that I think all writers deal with and and it's something people can never, some people never get over this. And it's something that I struggle with. And that's having an idea and have it be so perfect, unsullied by the process of putting it into words that when you when you write it down and you look at it you go this isn't the thing that I had in my head it's something different now and that difference between what you've actually done and what was in your head can sometimes be so disconcerting it can be hard to finish and can be hard to do anything with the with what you end up making and it's something that I feel like I've had to try and teach myself to understand that that is an inherent part of the process and that the thing that you have made as imperfect as it is and and as much as it may not even only it may only resemble the thing that was in your head um that the thing that you have made can have a different sort of value and uh i think this this whole quote and in both of these quotes and this whole story is about how writing this book as an act of therapy for himself, as an act of just trying to figure out like what it all meant. In some ways it feels so, so fruitless. It feels like it's pointless to him. It's like, I can't, I can't get it right. Everything I'm saying isn't right. I'm not even capturing it. And yet the thing that he has done is profound and it comes close. And he asks at the end of the book, like, why is it that I, you know, I, I just imagine silly stories and I get to leave um, this town that like, you know, my friends didn't escape and I get to be rich and, and, and well, you know, wealthy and, and have this life um, when that's all I do. And I, I sure this is guilt that King has felt many times in his life. And it's because it's like the same the same way that like stories can be so 
light and seem like they don't that they're not important at the same time there's some of the most important things there are and there's this duality right and and uh we talk about it a lot on this podcast and here he's talking about that specifically and he's saying it's so pointless it's a silly story it doesn't matter how can it have such a profound effect on my life on the other hand, the fact that we're reading it and thinking about the things we've been thinking about and the way that it's making us reflect on our own lives, that gives it the strength that it deserves, I think. And then that, that elevates it to deserving of maybe at least some of the the sort of praise that it, that it receives. Yeah. Am I making sense? <laughs> yeah, I wanted to comment and sort of like hone in on something you were saying, though. Um, this process of writing, like you have this idea in your head. And then you you go through it. It goes through a changing process as you put it down on paper. And it's like that sounds like an adaptation to me. You know what I mean? You have we talk about this all the time with like taking some taking this idea of somebody's book and trying to like boil it down to the essence of what you're trying to tell. Like what were the important parts when you went through it? And when you go to put something on paper, it's like, are you getting through to the core things that you wanted to tell with the story? And it might have changed form and shape in some ways. But are you still happy ultimately with the outcome? And that's, you know, that's an interest, interesting thing to, to talk about. I like that. Uh, all writing is adaptation. It's almost like no, you can't. Is it possible? Does someone like Stephen King, do the greatest writers of all time feel that they were able to get exactly what they had in their mind out? Or were they able to pivot and create something from the process? I, I just think it's impossible because yeah. for the reasons he's, he's outlining here, the things that are in your head are not words. They are not, right. they're not in the form that you're trying to put them in. And as soon as you start trying to write it down, you're you're forcing it into something that it isn't when it's in your head, and and that's yeah. a, that's an act of adaptation. I like that. Okay, so I, we got to talk about the fate of the kids too, because that was like really profound to me, and and the the fact that we got the revelation that the three of three of the four kids die, you know, before they reach adulthood, basically, or soon after, and um. You know, two of them kind of you're like, oh, one one is tragic. The fire is kind of like yeah. burn. Um, but you can see it within the character. Like not that the, the character, I think he was like at a party, right? Or something unclear. I think it's like it may have yeah. been his 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 cigarette or it may have been somebody else's or something. Yeah. And then the other one makes a lot of sense. He was like driving drunk and you could see that in the character. Joyriding. But he's also got a bunch of friends with him who apparently also died horrifically in the, in the accident. So he's like he's known as this awful person. His legacy is piece, being a piece of shit. Yeah, I forget what the the actual quote that he said, like the king of something, king of zero, or something, something like that. Like they just yeah, know him I as like this, like you know, he killed a bunch of people, so it's awful. And then the Chris thing that you know, I knew it was coming because it was talked about. But this idea of somebody like rising above their situation. I did like that he like try he applied himself. He ended up turning his you know grades around. He all the people in his life are like, how dare you? Like, are you think you're better than me? Like, he got hit by a bottle by his dad and like all this shit. And then, but he actually went to college and he was like turning and, it around. And it comes back to to like Gordy was helping him like tutoring him and like they would work for hours on end to, to study and to get him ready because he felt like he wasn't ready to go to high school or whatever they were talking about and then to college and then like to, to he's on the other side of it a great student and and he's like pursuing law he's like in his graduate degree and then he reads in the paper that he was like trying to break up a fight and was stabbed and just like there's so much of chris in that trying to break up a fight the perseverance of him continuing through even when people were trying to naysay him all the way through to this this moment and like the profoundness of 
of thinking how unfair it is that that he he ha- was from a worse situation, got to a similar situation as Gordy, and then ultimately didn't get to see some of the 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 result of that. Absolutely, man. There's two things from this. Like one is the absurdity and randomness and unfairness of who gets to live, who gets, who dies, who who draws the you know short stick and you know is is killed as a child, gets hit by a fucking train, uh, and who doesn't, right? And 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 it is uh, profoundly unfair and. There is a sense of fate, and we talk about the coin flip. We haven't mentioned that yet, but like they do a coin flip, and and uh, Gordon is the only one who flips heads. Everybody else flips tails, and everybody. The first time they all flip tails, and then we're we're told that it's a massive bad luck omen. Yeah, and then they all flip again, and Gordon's the only one who comes up different than yeah, the rest, and he's the only one who lives. And but he's still scarred by what happened, right? And and the rest of them die. But it's interesting because he says like you know they don't die in the story. No one dies in the story except for the you know kid who got hit by the train. But um, they do die. They are not. They are no longer alive. So he threads that like towards the end, and that makes me really interested in the ending too. Because I'm like, how does this affect how they? And it's kind of left for us to to infer the way in which it led to their death. Because he he proposes that they wouldn't have died if they hadn't gone on this trip. Yeah, kind of. And to me, that was like knowing that they weren't going to make it out like ultimately long term. And I think this is something that, that Stephen King used very effectively was this idea that. We're witnessing the short, finite life of someone on an adventure. And you, I felt myself being like, I want them to have the most fun. I want them to have everything they could possibly get out of this journey because I know like long, they're not going to have a long, happy life. So this like fleeting time here where they're all together, they're all happy to an extent. They're going through hardships together. They're, you know, yeah. uh, to, to know, like I was thinking about that in my mind as we were finishing up the story with them as kids and then you get to them as adults and, you know, you find out some of the things that happen. And it's like even even just when they started to fade away from each other, that was tragic, too, knowing that you know three of the four would be dead. Yeah. And and like thinking like, you know, they had this such this like really pivotal adventure together. And then, you know, they the sort of just grow grow distant from each other. And then ultimately three of the four pass away. It was one of the great things about storytelling and, and how you can breathe life into these these kids tales right and like sure it's fictional but like the idea of kids like this who go forgotten or whatever like immortalizing them in a way way, yeah yeah now the other thing that this was bringing up for me was something we haven't touched on either and that's the moment of the of the showdown between the older kids and the younger kids and chris draws the gun stands up to ace gordon stands his ground and uh shows bravery but the other two don't. And I think this fundamentally changes their relationship afterwards, too. I think it's part of it, yeah. They were like, we thought everyone was running. The two basically said, like, I thought everybody was going to run. Well, and, and, it, and it show it's like it, a test comes, and they're tested, and, like, some of them pass and some of them don't, I guess. And, like, Chris, you were saying it's so natural that he's the one who stepped up to break it up. And it goes to show how, like, being the brave one who stands up to people, like, sometimes that is this laudable thing, but other times it gets you killed and that ends up being what happens to him later. Um, I don't know. Yeah, it's, I think he's definitely saying something there, too, right? And um, it just reminds me of I've known people who were were had a reputation for being the tough one. The one who everyone was afraid of. And then they lose a fight. And then it, cha- it everything changes, 
Like their entire persona changes. They don't have that reputation anymore. And for better or for worse, it, it you know, like it's shown to be false in some way. Um, and that way I just thought I was thinking of that too. while I was reading this, like how often when your kids reputation is not built on much of anything until, and, and until it's really tested and then how it can, it can change so dramatically. Well, yeah. And how like it could change for the, like going forward as well. Yeah. Like that, that personality change could be informing how they continue the rest of their lives, you know, living the rest of their lives. Absolutely. Oh, so much interesting stuff in this, in this book, man. Um, and I feel like there's stuff that we're, we're missing. There's stuff that we've jumped over, but one of the beautiful things about this is we're going to get to revisit it next week when we do the movie. Um, and, and we'll talk about all the ways I'm sure it's different. Um, I'm sure it was, has been changed for the film. Um, I'm really curious to see it now because, uh, I really liked this book. And in fact, this is, this is rocketed up the list of some of the, some of my favorite stuff I've read by Stephen King. I really like this thing. Um, yeah, and I, I'm curious to see how the adaptation holds up uh, because, again, I barely remember it. <laughs> Some really notable people are in it. Rob Reiner directed yeah. it and, like, great soundtrack. The, the I mean, it's called Stand By Me, so you know they're going to use the song, obviously. I don't know if you remember uh, or okay. not. But... <laughs> no, I, I, I did not know why it was called Stand By Me. I didn't know it was referencing a song or, like, I didn't know any of that. Yeah, well, I mean, like, I love that song, so I'm excited to talk about a lot of stuff with this movie. Well, if you enjoyed our coverage and this conversation, um, I would love to know in the form of a rating and review on whatever app you chose to listen on. Um, I'm thinking about maybe we'll start like highlighting some of these reviews on our social media, doing something with them. So uh, I'd like to see some new ones pop up and, and um, you know, even just a sentence letting us know why you liked this episode. Five stars would be great. Um, I'd love to love to get that. Make sure to check out our Patreon if you want to support us in another way. It's patreon.com forward slash ink to film. And we have all kinds of tiers on there. But for just $2 a month, you can get our monthly bonus episode. That's usually adaptation adjacent. I mentioned earlier, we did Clueless this past month. And uh, yeah, it was it's really interesting to dig into some things that are adapted from different materials. Like that was an Emma adaptation. Yeah, so. a lot of people probably don't know that. We didn't. Uh, that was a fun one. Definitely check that out. Um, also, we have merch on there that is only available through our Patreon, um, and and that would be a huge benefit if you want to get like a Ink to Film mug with a with a custom uh, piece of art that we had done by Natalie Metzger just for this stuff. Uh, check that out. Also, follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All of those at Ink to Film. And thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right, that's going to be it for this week. We will be back next week for Stand By Me. And until next time, keep adapting.